This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. If a collaborative of any kind is going to work and stay together, it means that everyone has to change and be changing always. And I think that's the thing of like, that felt really valuable in this beginning phase is that like, we were both willing to change somehow. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your guest host, Zach Rosen. Zach, it's so nice to see you again. Listeners might know you as co-host of Slate's Mom and Dad are Fighting or from your other show, which we've featured on Working Before. It's called The Best Advice Show, and it really is. Thank you so much for having me. It's really fun to be here as co-host today. Well, before we go any further, I need to know whose voice we heard at the top of the show. That is Richard Newman, co-director of The Hinterlands, a Detroit-based theater company doing honestly some of like the most enthralling and challenging theater i have ever seen in my life wow i don't know their work so tell me why did you want to talk to the hinterlands well recently they did a six show run in detroit of a new production they created called will you miss me i took myself on an artist date to see it and <laughs> I was I was walloped, June. Um, mm. I, 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 my wife makes fun of me for always coming home from movies or plays and saying, <laughs> oh, my God, this was the, seriously, this one was the greatest thing I've ever seen. And I've said it like a 100 times. But this show really is one of the greatest things I've ever seen, even though now you know that you can't trust me from from my, my history. But, <laughs> but right. it's true. Ugh, man, I, I it's just incredible. So so what was so good about it? So there are just four actors in it. It's Richard and Liza Bilby, his partner and co-director of The Hinterlands, who you'll meet in a minute, and then Jenna Kirk and Livia Chelsea. So four of them. The show is performed outdoors in a quiet yard, and 
you know, let me tell you how the hinterlands summarizes it. I think that's a good entry point. A haunting song echoing across the holler draws a traveler into a funeral service for one of many white workers who moved from Appalachia to Detroit in the last century. But this is no normal funeral, and this is no ordinary corpse. Layering traditional Appalachian songs with family lore, pre-Christian mythology, and more, Will You Miss Me pushes audiences to examine the stories we tell ourselves about who we are and to grieve the selves that have been forgotten. It is a funeral for whiteness, a memorial for what came before its construction, and a way of imagining what might come after. Whoa, whoa. <laughs> there's, there's they're a not lot messing there. around, are they? <laughs> right. No, they're not. I feel like, I mean, it's, that sounds very heady and intellectual and heavy, which it is, but the show is also hilarious. And mm-hmm. like it hit me on a body level, a gut level. Wow. And it sent me into a, a kind of reverie that I, I, I haven't felt from a piece in a long time. I was I was haunted by it, like I, not wow. just on my drive home, but I woke up the next day thinking about it. I kept talking about it with my wife. And like I was kind of I couldn't get back to my life before buying a ticket to go see it again the following week. Like I needed wow. to I needed to reenter it. Wow. I think what's so unique about their work is is the way they stack and layer ideas together. They use documentary elements, dance, song, history, humor. It's not like a three a three act um, mm. play at all. It's something that I just didn't know could exist until they kind of put this this really complex but but beautiful puzzle together. And <sighs> I laughed out loud. I cried. It was it, it was everything I could ask for. Wow. It's hard to imagine a more ringing endorsement. Uh, Amazing. Uh, I am very excited to hear this interview, but I believe that you have an extra segment for Slate Plus members. What will they hear? Yes, I do have an extra segment. Um, Oh, but a couple quick things. I asked them to describe the origin story of the hinterlands. This is during the the main interview. And Richard Mm -hmm. mentions early conversations he was having with, with a guy named Brian. That's Brian Moore. Just FYI, he's a frequent collaborator with uh, Liza and Richard. So that's that. Mm. And also Richard mentions another theater company a few times. They're called Double Edge. And he worked with them a bunch before forming the Hinterlands. So that's uh, an FYI. And then as far as Slate Plus, Richard, Liza, and I were all in Detroit. We actually did the interview in my living room, which was so nice to (laughs) to be off Zoom for a minute. Um, Mm. And I think the city holds a real amount of allure for creative people. You've probably seen the New York Times articles, et cetera, over the years about, you know, how artists are coming here and, quote, revitalizing the city, how you can come to Detroit, buy a house for $100. Um, There's a lot of myth in that. There's a lot of fiction in that. Mm. And um, we wanted to just get into that a little bit more because we don't often have Detroiters on this show working. It's very true. Uh, And that idea about Detroit, about like just that, that, lore of moving from the coast to Detroit to to make work in a place without skyrocketing rents. Yes, yes, I'm very familiar with that narrative. So I am very excited to hear what what they said. Yeah, great. Yeah, they um they, they help to complicate that narrative of the artist saving Detroit. And so mm-hmm. we get into that, what it's actually like to live here, make work here, and and how to do it in an ethical 
and frankly, like non-colonialist way. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yes. Fascinating. And as I said, something I've been wondering about since I first saw those stories. And if you're a member of Slate Plus, you'll hear that at the end of the episode. And if you aren't, it's really easy to join. Sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash working plus. Plus, you'll get bonus content from our show and other shows like... Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood actually produce entire exclusive episodes just for Slate Plus members. You will also get extra segments on shows like Culture Gab Fest and Zach's show, Mom and Dad are Fighting. And, well, here's something that's pretty important. You'll never hit a paywall on the Slate.com website. I also like to think you'll be supporting the work that we do right here on Working. Okay, let's hear Zach's conversation with Liza Bilby and Richard Newman of The Hinterlands. So you two meet at the Del Arte International School of Physical Theater. What attracted you to that place? Uh, well, I, I mean, I, I came out of an undergrad that was like based in American method techniques. It was like a Meisner school which is, it's like Meisner, Strasberg, Adler. These are some of these like great American mm-hmm. teachers. And I was not, this is like a, the people I was, um, who were teaching me in undergrad were people who had like studied with people who had studied with, the, you know. Yeah, yeah. It was um, not sort of a direct um, connection to those teachers, but it's very much like in this American way of, of teaching actors based a lot on American naturalism and as a which whether it's recognized or not is like a style of theater right mm-hmm. um, so I was that was the school I was in I had a lot of trouble with my body I had a lot of trouble like appearing kind of natural on stage and although I had like a very rich like emotional life so I um so I, I felt like I needed to do some kind of more physical training mm-hmm. and to do some kind of yeah more physical work. And that's like what started me looking at like physical theater schools. So Richard has this impulse to figure out the movement and, and body stuff. Yeah. What brought you there, Liza? Well, okay. So I went to an undergraduate Kalamazoo College that was like super nerdy and really heady. And I entered college in the... You studied theater. And, I studied I theater and mm-hmm. I had a minor in anthropology. Mm-hmm. And the year I entered, it was like the 100th anniversary of the birth of Bertolt Brecht. And so we were doing all this like work in Brecht and the lineage of Brecht. And that's a very... There's a lot of intellectualizing around the work of Brecht. So I, I was interested in that kind of work. And it wasn't necessarily physical... But the last year I was in school, um, we had a teacher who directed us in a piece, and he had gone to Del Arte, and it was a it was this a servant the servant of two masters is the piece that we did, and people were masked. We learned mask performance, like commedia style masked performance, and I it really resonated with me. I also hadn't felt very in my body because I was like. A straight A student, except for one B I got in fifth grade that what I remember. Class? 
It was, well, it was Mrs. Northey's class. And it was because, I don't know what it was, but I was like pulled out of school to go do this extra math program at the university. And so like, <laughs> that I should have got an A. It's, I'm 42 years old and I'm thinking about when I was 10 and I got this B. But this is who I am. So I'm like very in my head. And by the time I got to college, I started getting interested in like what's going on with my body. And I was taking some dance classes. And through this Brecht, I don't even know if I can get into this. This is like super convoluted. I went to China right after, well, during undergrad and then again after undergrad as a Fulbright scholar to study traditional Chinese performance, Shichu, a form called Chuanju. We translate stuff as like Chinese opera. So it's that. Mm. Um, and I was just going to observe it and do like an anthropological project on it because they people were pulling in this very regional form were pulling these texts from Brecht and that's kind of how I landed there but all of my teachers there were like no 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 you can't just watch this you have to do it so then I ended up like enrolling in middle school as a 22 year old in China you were Billy Madison (laughs) yeah but in China and they're is a way of performing that is very structured and technical, but also very emotional, all at the same time. And that made me think of this mask work that I had done in undergrad, and I really liked it. And I, I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it would be considered physical theater. But somehow in all that, I linked together that I wanted to do more of this. And... I thought of going to Del Arte because I had such a good experience with uh, alum of the school and I wanted to learn how to make work. That was really important to me because the stuff I was doing in China was all um, oral tradition set pieces that were passed down and that you have a responsibility to do correctly and pass down correctly. So I wanted to do something different and that's how I ended up at Del Arte. So when you began to form the hinterlands, what kinds of conversations were you having about like what you wanted to be? Yeah, it was first it was like uh, me and Brian were talking about starting starting something and starting some projects. And the first of those projects was this piece that Liza and Brian were working on. Well, I was just really interested in the work that was being done because Richard was training us or was like leading training for the group and I had this all these different kinds of reactions to it like I loved it I hated it it made me encounter myself in a way that I wasn't used to I loved having a practice I loved like being super sweaty at the end of a three-hour session and having had all these different kinds of experiences that are hard to put into words. And I was like, gonna leave, gonna go do something else, gonna try to be an actor somewhere. And there was just something about this group that started forming and this practice really that just, like I couldn't walk away from it. It was too interesting. Yeah, despite it being hard to put into words, like what would, if someone was watching, this these three hour sweaty sessions what would we have been seeing at the time we we were 
pushing ourselves really hard physically. We were also like 29 years old. So some of this came out of my training with, with Double Edge. A lot of it did. And where um, we would work physically to the point of exhaustion, we would develop based on a series of questions. Um, like some of them could be like personal, um, related to like our lives. Like for instance, it's like, okay, like my life is out of balance. I might really train balance really, really hard. And what does that balance training look like? Uh, it's like involves, like, it could just be as simple as like balancing on one foot and working with my point of my center of gravity, mm -hmm. pushing myself off my center of balance, recovering balance, uh, but doing that for quite a long time. I'm just interested in what, what you were saying about it, it being hard to put into words, but there was something about it that was that was attractive. I'm not, I was never interested in waiting around as an actor. I have a real problem with that in my life, which is my own burden to bear. And I can, I'm working on that, but I like to be doing something. And this approach was allowing me, even though I was, didn't have a performance at that moment to be engaged in the questions that one has when they're performing. Like you weren't rehearsing for a, for a piece. You we, were... we were, and then we were like, had a piece that we were trying to make that as we started working together, that project evolved. So we were ultimately, we're at the initial stages of a new project, but it wasn't written, it wasn't made yet. Mm -hmm. And so we were trying to understand who we were together. And this is you, Richard and Brian? And a couple other people okay. who then left because of visa issues. And so in the end, it ended up being me and Richard and we pulled in a couple other people. Yeah, it was like, it's this, I think it's this when you're like forming a group or a way of, of working, not everyone's gonna stay, you know, it's gonna stick around through it. And, um, and at different points, like in our work together, we've had like different groups, mm -hmm. like, but the two of us have always stayed. Yeah. And so like we've, there was a group there in Milwaukee when we were first starting. And then we formed a group in Detroit early on, which some of the people stayed around and some people didn't. And then we had like other small groups at different times. Um, and now with, uh, with, well, you missed me. There's a group formed that's actually feeling pretty solid like more more solid than th things have felt in a long time for us you know but I, it is a process of like is this for everyone like who is this for and like how are we like what the thing that I remember about this like early time working is like I had a lot that I came with from um double edge and also like we were all kind of rejecting things from Del Arte at the same time and because we had all worked there mm -hmm. in different ways. But then like you also were bringing something very specific around like your training in form, which was something I had never really encountered like this, um, this work you'd done in China and the way you were applying that to these other, um, to these other lineages and methodologies, et cetera. I was like, oh, I've never, I, this is like new to me. So um, and the the training I was bringing was somewhat new to you. So I think there was something like 
where it was like, oh, wow, this like training that's like really based on a kind of physical improvisation that I came from. And then this training that's like really based on form that Liza had but from both of us, bef- like kind of n- not from Del Arte. Mm-hmm. You know, these are like two mm-hmm. different things we did. And then we had this common language um, of both having through that other, been through that other. With the same teachers. Yeah, with the same end. teachers. Yeah. That we were like, oh, okay. Like, can these, how do these pieces relate? And that's, and that's what got to be really interesting. And where I started to see in Liza, like, oh, wow, this like physical training that I've been doing when it's applied to this form based training that Liza has, it makes something incredible. And that like, I was like, I don't think anybody actually has both of those things Mm -hmm. other than Liza, like that I know of, like who has like trained so intensely with form and then trained so intensely with this, um, this other way of, of training that is about improvisation and impulse. And when those two things come together, it's like, can be is spectacular. And so I think that's what like was, was in, in the end. So, so exciting for me, for us to keep working, you know, was somehow like, I saw this huge possibility and how these, um, these different ways of working overlapped, intersected, and mm-hmm. like created new directions somehow. And and I, I do think it's this like if if a collabor if a collaborative of any kind is gonna work and stay together, it means that everyone has to change and be changing always. And and I think that's the thing of like that felt really valuable in this beginning phase is that like we were both willing to change somehow. And then, so how did, how did the, the work you were doing, this physical training that you were doing, like ensure that you would change? I mean, you're doing it every day. So over time you start to notice these rhythms in yourself, rhythms in other people, you start to be, more patient in these processes of making or the processes of even training towards making where you're like, okay, it's not great every day. It's not horrible every day. I am, and maybe it's good, great, horrible, 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 (laughs) good, horrible, great. Mm -hmm. And you look back and you can, because of the repetition of all this, you start to see yourself in this other way as a collection of days as a collection of moments and you start to see the group as that way um and it's still difficult to do and the older i get it's hard because there's other problems like my body is not the body it was when i was 29 and so there are things i can't do there's things i'm not interested in though and there's also things i can get to faster that would take me a long time before Mm -hmm. and so it is this constant process of negotiation and trying to tap into your desire and not doing things by rote and being willing to talk about it or try to reevaluate how we're working. We'll be back with more of Sex Conversation with Lisa Bilby and Richard Newman.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. So please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at workingatslate.com. You can also send a voice memo from your phone to that address or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Zach's conversation with Liza Bilby and Richard Newman. So when you formed the Hinterlands, like what did you have a guiding principles or manifesto or just like, what did you want to do? You had this, these things that you were, you wanted to discard from what you had done pr- previously, but like, what, what, what were you after? I think there is a quality of the unknown that's inherent in the name. That was something that was, that we're somehow looking for something just beyond what we know, mm-hmm. which and the, the hinterlands on, on, on an old map is this space like outside of the city but is not like is not the terra incognita Mm -hmm. is not the is not the completely unknown Mm -hmm. with the monsters with the monsters yeah yeah it's 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 that this is this is just past what we know Mm -hmm. and and that felt important we're not like casting ourselves into madness or something um that they're that we're trying to go a little further Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just to the kind of edge and that was that was this in a way the starting principle and and then quickly we found like an interest together in how we approach form and that was something that we started looking at with really work and also because we didn't have an outside director like um like we're co-directing the company often i'm directing the pieces from inside and so that looks really different than how it looks to have like a an outside director Mm -hmm. and because of that we started working with forms in terms of like performance forms so for instance in in the circuit we were looking at vaudeville as this american performance form and it has a kind of set of there's a set of rules there and a set of like how far can we can we push things while still it's still being this thing so then how do you go from doing your your physical practice and and your balance work to actually okay now we're going to start making a piece we're going to start making a show a deadline yeah that's what i was going to say too yeah the most important thing is to have is to have one I mean, so just to say what our process was for Will You Miss Me is we decided, we started working on songs several years ago, like three years ago, that were probably going to be towards this piece. We applied for funding for the piece in 2019 and got a Night Arts Challenge grant to make the piece. So that was the funding we had for it. And we were working on songs. Why? Why? Why songs? Well, because, for I mean, for... I 
was never a singer and I didn't come out of a family of singers and I realized I don't know any songs. I don't know any songs. I know some pop songs. Well, now you do. Oh my gosh, I know a lot of songs. <laughs> <laughs> I was starting to find things more and more through the voice and through vocal work and um, and also as I'm getting older, um, there are things that I used to do physically in the space that I can't do anymore. And um, I was looking for what's a new way to train myself. And um, mm. and so working on songs, which are, are singing is very physical. It requires a huge amount of energy, um, a huge expansion in the body. There's very precise things that have to happen with within a song in terms of both the the notes and the and the the timbre, and um, so for me that was like a, a huge interest is like how how can how can I approach singing in this this same kind of rigorous way that um, we had been working physically and I always have loved to sing um, so it felt to me like a kind of new uh, new opening for how to work mm -hmm. as my body changes. So then in the summer of 2020, you know, in the midst of the pandemic and the social movements on the street, we were like, we want to make this piece right now. Now is the time. We were going to maybe, we were sort of waiting to see what's going to happen with the pandemic. We weren't necessarily, we, no one was planning on the pandemic. Um, and so we're like, okay, we're gonna work on this piece. And then this artist, Jenna Kirk, who also has a background in singing and has um, Appalachian lineage, came to work with us and then- Who's an old, old friend, yeah. So then we're like trying to do physical work together and we would do, started to do research and Jenna's like a fiend for research. You just, she'll just go and buy every book and learn all the things. And so then we're like, okay, let's try some physical improvisation. Um, and then we started writing with an ear towards the piece and we were trying to process a bunch of grief that was happening in our lives. And so then we worked with a dramaturg to look at the writing, but we're not really on our feet staging things and we don't know what the piece is. It's in What a, did you know at the time about it? It was going to be, there's family stuff that's going to be in it because I have family from Appalachia. So to Jenna, you have lineage from Appalachia. Well, we knew that the piece was going, that was in some ways g going to relate to these Appalachian songs, that we were going to have some historical content about Appalachian migration to Detroit. Um, we thought it was going to be more heavily weighted that way originally. Um, and that we were looking, that we were, that we wanted to interrogate, to question whiteness, white identity through um, these songs, through these lineages, like our like family histories, mm -hmm. and through this historical, um, this history of Appalachian migration to Detroit and ultimately uh, assimilation and white identity in in detroit in like, some way when were we someone else when were we not white when were we like a blank type of person a when was when was there some kind of identity like other than whiteness which we i see as a as a, an emptiness as a um as a capitalist construct 
Yeah, yeah. If we're gonna be intellectual about it, I think on an emotional level, I I see it as like a, um, like a, a just a, a a gaping wound, and um, and that can only produce violence somehow. Um, so there there's for me a need to understand some kind of other possibility, and working with these songs which are sung in Appalachia but some of them are just very very old like a thousand years old like some of the songs we're singing like Little Margaret which you sing in the performance is over 500 years old yeah like 500 years old yeah um, so um, so you had all those ideas and themes kind of yeah swirling swirling and then um, yeah and then in the pandemic my father died from COVID. I didn't get to have a funeral for him. I picked up his ashes through a drive-through window um, from the crematorium, like in an actual takeout bag is how they gave me his ashes. And, and in, in, in trying to reckon with my grief for him, our next door neighbor died from COVID during this time. And then our across the street neighbor died, not from COVID, but it was somehow it was related in some way. Um, Joan died. Joan died. Our teacher who we were talking yeah, about. Yeah. We, um, and we had a, didn't have a funeral for any of these people. Or we didn't go to them because I think there was a funeral for the next door neighbor, but it wasn't open. No, yeah. And yeah, like Joan had a funeral last summer, but I... Yeah, but after, yeah. yeah. I mean, my, my father still hasn't had a funeral. I don't think we'll ever have one. Um, and so through this eventually arrived the, 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 the idea to structure the piece around a funeral both as out of a personal need and as an understanding through going through this grieving process of how impossible it is to let go of something um, without some of these these rituals. Yeah. But we didn't like sit down and really put together a document that could become a quote-unquote script until March. Until... March, April. March, but it was really, yeah, April. But the songs were the seed? The thing is, is we're singing these songs like almost every day. And so like there was a lot of, there's often a panic at different points in the process of like a feeling of like we don't have anything, which is always the case, usually. I have just panicked throughout <laughs> this process. It's horrible for me. And this thing, the question you're asking about this, like how this stuff gets started is the worst part. When you, you're like, okay, we're ready to make the piece. That is the point that I like have massive freak out. I'm great before and I'm totally fine after. But in this point, I'm just like, count me out. The, po the point where what you have to articulate what it yeah, because you have to say what it's not. Because you have, to, you have yeah. to give things up, and mm. the dreams of I'm like, oh man, I really wish we had talked a little bit more about the historical content, <laughs> but I have to let that go. Because you have a deadline, and you have to start building. You can't have everything in you, it. Yeah, and it doesn't fit and in it. what we've gone, the direction we've gone, and you have to be real about the direction you've gone in, mm. and what the interests actually are. 
And so it's very challenging. But you're great in that moment. This is like you like emerge out of the darkness as a glowing figure with <laughs> your mind empty and you're walking through the bees deciding. I, I get into a flow state, yeah, when, we, when we're in the structuring process. I think it's in a collaboration, it's really important to have people who are good at different things. And that like, if everyone is freaking out at the exact same moment, yeah. That's 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 tough. Yeah, it's tough, and yeah. so like it's okay that like at this particular time, like this like this this process, Liza, you're talking about is hard for you, um, because yeah, and I somehow like come alive in this this moment, and then, but before that, you've been in that having that moment, you know, and I was struggling until we could get the start this mm-hmm. this structuring process. I'm an idea guy. Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. And Jenna too. I feel like also. Yes, I'm. I am. I am a. I am a watchmaker. You know, it's like how does it fit together, and I love it. I love how it all fits together. I I do. Of course, I have ideas, but I'm not someone who is like really strong on on creating from like. Um having amazing ideas you're like not you don't like brainstorming sessions which i think there's a lot of we have some weird ideas right now as a culture about like how someone should be and i give my students group projects all the time i teach uh movement to actors movement and voice to actors and i was like going through their journals they're talking about this group project they just did and someone's like i just don't know i just don't have any ideas i don't have any ideas and that's okay it really is like you don't need to be able to toss ideas into a brainstorming session and not everyone can and that's not useful also it's useful to have someone who can see the ideas or someone who can see what's happening on stage especially in an ensemble process without a director of like, how do you divide the roles up that a director might have among the different people present mm-hmm. um, to make it happen? Yeah, at least this idea of like the auteur, you know, director that we are like that we all have, I think, like from both in theater and I think probably like comes out of film too, yeah. you know, and so it's like that doesn't have to be just one person. Yeah. Like it's okay for Liza to have these super strong ideas and then for me to figure out how to work them out because they both need to happen, right? <laughs> and so, um, and not that you're, not that either of us are incapable of the other thing. It's just like, I think we have different moments where, where we're like most enjoying the work somehow. Zach, there was so much great stuff in that interview, and I was just really fascinated by their description of their process and how committed they are to it, Mm -hmm. you know, a long time into doing theater work. You know, they're not beginners, but they're still working hard. Um, And at the beginning of the interview, I was just really struck by their recitation of the lineage of the techniques and the training that are part of their methods. You know, I've been thinking about... I've been thinking about that this year, having read Isaac's amazing book, The Method, and also listening to some of his interviews with Mm -hmm. directors. And I have to say that I'm kind of jealous. Like, we don't really have that kind of 
historical apprenticeship when it comes to the art forms mm. that you and I do, you know, writing and audio production? Or do we? Like, are you aware of being part of a artistic and creative lineage? I am aware of it, but I don't think that my masters, that my teachers know that they taught me because so much of what I've learned in radio and audio is, you know, from websites and from like listening to digital audio files of lectures and conference sessions. And wow. I, I have spent time in a room with with people who have trained me, but I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm going to br bring a prop out here. I'm, I'm holding up... Studs Terkel's working. Oh, yeah. So wow. I mean, I feel like someone like Studs Terkel, who did hundreds and hundreds of really open-hearted, precise, well-researched interviews with artists and workers, he, I, I feel, is the kind of godfather of the school of of radio that I come from. Mm -hmm. So I never met him, but I consider mm -hmm. him one of my teachers. Mm -hmm. But I, to I totally agree that I'm also jealous of like the in the room, sweaty, yeah. in your face types of teachers that you know Liza and Richard uh you know got to experience yeah another really wise thing that I heard in that interview was that ideally collaborators are good at different things mm. you know mm -hmm. Liza loves throwing out ideas and she hates killing darlings or as uh, her former co-host Ramon so memorably said one time beheading swans uh and <laughs> and Richard is the opposite of that, more or less. Um, audio editing, an art form that you are very experienced and very good at, is all about making cuts. And each decision is effectively a decision about the shape of the final product, the thing that people actually hear. Our regular producer, Cameron Drews, talked about that when he interviewed another podcast producer, Alex Sujong Laughlin from Normal Gossip back mm -hmm. in June. So I wonder, Zach, have you developed a philosophy of cutting over your years of doing this work? Do you have any tips for the cut haters out there? Well, this I think this just applies to audio makers, but we might be able to think of a way to extrapolate it over to <laughs> writing and poetry or whatever else. But I find there is no better way for me to make cuts that, that make sense than to go and drive around and listen to my stuff. Oh. So don't look, don't look at the audio file. Um, don't look at the transcript. Just drive around like you are a listener or a surrogate for the listener. And then you realize, oh, the music comes in too early there. We need a beat there. That line is lame. It comes off as disingenuous. <laughs> like there's so I make so many. My edits are so much better when I'm driving around um, looking at something else, you know, than wow. they would be um, sitting at my workstation like I am right now. Yeah. So like get away from the tools and mm -hmm. just get in touch with the work. Wow. That's yep. Amazing advice. It's I'm gonna, simple. I'm gonna take that to heart. Uh, <laughs> now, I am not one of those people who surrounds themselves with inspirational quotes. I promise. But I really did write down something that Richard said, and I have it. I'm looking at it right now. It's underneath my computer. He said, "If a collaborative of any kind is going to work, everyone has to change and be changing always." Yes. Yeah. It's one of those things. It's really easy to say. And right. in my experience, at least, or maybe my personality is what's coming through here, hard to do. Um, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot in the book that I'm writing, where especially as people like dedicate years to a project and it's really hard and it really doesn't pay anything. 
So life is a struggle. A human response is to dig in and reject anything and anyone who doesn't do things that way. But that's just a recipe for obsolescence. Yeah. How are you with change? Any tips for letting go of outdated processes and finding new, better ways? I mean, I'm so deeply inspired by what the Hinterlands did with, with Will You Miss Me. They they built a whole play out of, they basically made a musical. You know, like there's yeah. so much music in this thing and they, have not, they haven't done that before. They're not trained singers, at least Liza mm-hmm. and Richard aren't. So they built a whole thing, a whole two-year production on the back of something that they had never done before. So just this notion of injecting, you know, these foreign elements into your work, they are going to intrinsically change the DNA of the thing. And they are only willing to do that because, and they're and they're doing that because they are hungry for discomfort. They're hungry for making something so different from the last thing. Yeah. And then as, as you know, as fans of their work, like you can see the threads from one thing to the next. Like they're using history, they're using documentary in some ways, but like the piece that I saw in 2016 compared to the piece that I saw now, they're so different, but there is this kind of shared... I mean, I think that the, they're, they, they intersect and that they both have this, this complexity that's like mm. really challenging and, and intoxicating to try to unpack as the, yeah. the viewer. You know, and, and it's something that we talk about, or I talk about, I think pretty much any time we discuss theater, like what a crazy business to be in, where, you know, they worked for two years, they had a six night run, you said? I mean, yeah, and they're trying you know, to do more shows. They're trying to good. go to Columbia, I think. So it's not, it's not six and out, but I think yeah. they are trying to yeah. extend the life of it. But it's not like, you know, it's not like Broadway where they're going and doing yep. 90, you know, 90 shows over the period right. of two months or something. Yeah, it's not eight shows a week for right. as many weeks as possible. Yeah, what, I mean, right. what a what a crazy, crazy art form, really. I want to come back to the intro. Uh, when you mentioned that the first time you went to see Will You Miss Me, you took yourself there on an artist date. Uh, that's one of the elements of Julia Cameron's artist way system, I guess you could call mm-hmm. it, along with morning pages. Legend. She, when I spoke to her on Working in June, she really is. Um, but it's a part of the practice that you just hear a lot less about than those very famous pages. I'm curious, can you talk about how they work for you? How do you decide what to do? How often do you take them? I mean, I know you're a crazy busy guy with a young family. And Mm -hmm. what do you get out of them? So my kids are now five and two. So when they were newborns, it was much harder to justify it. But now... Thankfully, I have a partner who supports my dates because she goes on them too. She, she'll go to she'll go to plays all the time by herself, and I think we've both realized that it is just as important as like exercise and sleep and water. Wow! Like we, I, th- I need it, or else I'm going to be depressed if I don't go see a movie or go see a band that I like or go see a play that I'm interested in. Um, like what 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 am I even doing here? <laughs> like what's the, what's the point of like being a uh, a parent or a, a podcast maker or an interviewer if I'm not getting these inputs. Yeah, yeah. You know, if it's so so I, I am really lucky and I, and I want to tell you, listener, like if you are out there and you feel like oh, I can't justify going, there's too much, there's too much stuff going on at home. Like, and if you are lucky enough to have a partner, like talk to them about what you need and talk to them about, I, you know, even if it's once a month, yeah. 
I need an hour a month to go to the gallery, to go to a movie. Just like it's your life is going to be so much better off. You're going to be a better partner. You're going to be a better parent. You're going to be a better friend. So I think it's just like, frankly, a foundational part of living in the world. Wow. Okay. I had been, I actually really genuinely was thinking a couple of weeks ago, you know, I was remembering it and thinking, why don't I do that? Like, I should do that. So now. Why don't you? Now, Zach, I will. I really, there's no reason for me not to. Like, oh, I should. Is it just momentum of COVID? Like, it's kind yeah, of. Yeah, or also just like, I, I, I'm i aware that I have a book deadline and it's looming a little bit and I should be sat at my desk. But we all know you cannot. Like you, that's that is not productive. Just sitting at your desk for two more mm-hmm. hours, it would be. I know on a, a at a very clear level that it, those two hours would be more better for me if I went to a gallery or whatever it is. Um, yeah. But can we plan your next artist date? <laughs> uh, what do you want to do? Oh, I don't know. Can I give you a deadline? <laughs> yes, give is me a deadline. Too, am I imposing too no, much? No, give me a deadline. Okay, so in the next in the next two weeks, mm-hmm. let's say before Thanksgiving. I want you to take yourself out on an artist date. What do you want to do? I don't know. I think I think maybe a gallery. We've been watching this TV show called Fake or Fortune, which is kind of weird, a little bit fake, but a, but super also fascinating. And there are some really nice galleries in Edinburgh where I now live, and um, I haven't been in them since I since I moved here. So yeah, I'm going to go to maybe the Modern Art Gallery in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. Go. Uh, and then you're going to have some ideas about your book that you weren't even expecting. Yep. Yep. Going to come home fired up. I think so. All right. Thank you, Zach. I'm excited for you. Thank you. Uh, before we go, I I want to get your thoughts about Detroit as a creative community. You know, Slate Plus members will hear Liza and Richard's views. But I want to know about your experience of that city as a place to do creative work, in your case, audio, at least, probably other stuff, too. Were you there before those infamous New York Times stories started to appear? How does it compare to other places that you've lived? So I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up about 20 minutes north of Detroit. So I have both been here all my life and really not really been in Detroit at all because growing up in the suburbs, it's like you would come downtown for a ball game or a a play and and not much else. Um, so I moved here in 2007. Okay. So a couple years before like that first big wave mm-hmm. and the city has changed so much. Mm. You really could actually buy a house for $500 when I moved here like that. That wasn't, yeah. that wasn't like a uh, fiction. You could actually get a house, um, for $500, fix it up if you were handy or buy like a house that was ready to be lived in for 20 grand. Like it oh, was crazy just because of the i mean there were two million people that lived here at the peak of uh detroit's population in like 1950 two million mm-hmm. and then now there's about six hundred thousand. Wow. Wow. so just this max mass exodus of yeah. people um for you know a whole host of reasons but like the simplified version is we have the big three here and they moved so many of their operations out of out of the city and state and mm. so when the whole town mostly works for in this one industry and that industry leaves, you know, you're left with, with a lot of uh, depopulation and, and unemployment. And so there was, there was this time that you could come here and buy land for cheap, but still I say there are 600,000 people. That's not like there's no people. That's still a massive city, you know, top, top 10, 15, 20 city um, population wise in the country with a ton of people who have all this lived experience who, you know, never moved away, who aren't coming here for the first time. So, you know, the thing the thing that 
I needed to learn to tap into was the people that were already here. Um, and for so many years of my work as a public radio producer and, and reporter and interviewer, it was like finding people who have come up with creative ways to survive and thrive um, in mm. Detroit, whether, you know, as artists or bakers or activists, anything else. So it was really about tapping into the, the local knowledge that was here. And so y you get a lot of complaints or just criticism about, you know, quote, new people coming in, people from New York or wherever else, not trying to signal out New York, people coming <laughs> from anywhere who just don't know people here. And, you know, a ton of people like Liza and Richard are willing to tap in and get involved with their neighbors. But if you aren't, then you're going to be, you're going to kind of come off as a yeah. kind of an asshole. Yeah. Like, yeah. The, the, like you have to say hello. You have to be nice. You have to make eye contact with your neighbors, ask them where they've been, ask them how you can be of service. So th yeah. that stuff wasn't intuitive to me. I was lucky enough to meet people and, you know, the microphone is just this incredible passport that you get into <laughs> people's lives and hearts. So, you know, I had an excuse to go and sit down and talk to people and ask them how to be, how to live. So Detroit is just the greatest education I've, I've ever had. And it's, I still don't know anything, you know, like it's, 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 a, it's, it's a lifelong, it's a lifelong uh, school. Go Motor City. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, you have to come here, June. I know. I've never been to Detroit uh, or as I, I don't know why I always have pronounced it Detroit. <laughs> no idea why. Um, but <laughs> anyway, okay. I got I got to go there. Listeners, we hope you enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Then you'll never miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra segments on shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. And lastly, don't sleep on Zach's delightful, super short podcast, The Best Advice Show. Mm. It's awesome. Thank you so much, June. And uh, thanks to Liza Bilby and Richard Newman for being such game interviewees this week. And thank you to our producer this week, who's a guy called Zach Rosen. Thank you, Zach, for uh, doing a twofer. You're welcome, and it's an honor. <laughs> we'll be back next week with Isaac's interview with Karen Hahn. Yes, working co-host Karen Hahn. And they'll be talking about the writing of Karen's new book, Bong Joon-ho, Dissident Cinema, which will be released on November 22nd. Until then, get back to work. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.